I'm Sally's oldest daughter, whom you have probably not heard about. And I'm not even related to Sally. <laughs> Who is this stranger? And why am I in her house? Welcome to episode 37 of Sally's Performing Arts Lab podcast. In which Sally learns to love squirrels and herself. It's a clip show! <laughs> child Sarah and her fiance Classic Dan for opening the first of two Sally Pal clip shows. This episode features bits of the first 18 Sally Pal podcasts. We hear about the value of reinventing work, creating new work with open casting options, acknowledging the audience, making choices before and during performances, and pushing through obstacles to make something new and fresh. You'll be hearing from Emily Adams, Steve Barker, Sheila Black, Daniel Bowers, Jana Hunter, Will Inman, Angie Mitchell, George Nelson, Nicole Perry, Darian Silvers, Lisa Stefanik, Wes Vrooman, Lisa Wilson, Michael Wright, and Nicole Zimmerer. You'll hear about the excitement people in the performing arts are feeling regarding a trend toward inclusion and the frustration with outdated practices. I know you'll enjoy hearing these moments again, and I invite you to revisit the episodes. You can find them all by typing Sally Pal into any podcast platform or visiting sallypal.com. Let's get started. and Darian Silvers had some things to say in episode two about why it's important to reinvent existing works and why storytellers need to collaborate toward that end. You'll hear them share about Animal Farm, a revamped musical version of an existing show performed in Houston in 2017. Animal Farm, which was a quasi-musical, but it was Brechtian, so it was like a play with music and da 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 Not by Brecht, just very Brechtian. And the original script did not at all resemble what we ended up putting on stage. We had a genius music director who was able to make a song suddenly honky-tonk or poppy or whatever he needed to do. He'd just go... And our director was so inclusive and so about everyone having a personal investment. Because, you know, there were people... My character had a name, Benjamin, and then someone else would play Squealer or Napoleon. But then sometimes there would be four heads, a cat, whatever. And he said, I need to know every animal name if you don't have one and need you to come up with one and he would remember it immediately and he would always refer to that animal as the animal's name that they had given them uh, and he would listen to all of our ideas because he would you know we would stop somewhere and he'd be like this is bad uh, and he was like does anybody have any ideas and we would suggest them and sometimes they worked and sometimes they didn't but I've never really been in a play before where every single actor on stage was so deeply invested mm-hmm. uh, in creating the product because we didn't have a certain, like if you're doing Our Town, that's a play that needs to be done a specific way. And there's kind of an ideal you're reaching for. But in this one, there really wasn't that. We were just trying from the ground up to build something that we like. If you are doing new work, there are no expectations. And you can really take it anywhere you want to, and that's a lot of fun. Um, but if you are doing 
something that has been done a hundred times, you can still make it however you want to make it. Just make sure to respect the playwright because he's part of this collaboration process with you, whether he's there or not. And make sure that his brushstroke is shown as well. I don't want to see a firm play where no one has made any choices, where the director makes all the choices. I think it's a lot easier to connect with the audience if a bigger group of people are trying to connect with the audience versus the director just trying to connect with the audience with these people by using them as tools, which that's not what it is. It's a show and you're trying to collaborate. And you're not going to be able to connect differently with different audiences if you don't have different people and different ideas on the stage. Because if you have the same idea every night, the audience is going to react the same way every single night. You have an audience walking out without any post-show conversation. That's what I always aim for. I want to play that causes a good conversation on the car ride home. Yeah. Or like Lin-Manuel Miranda. Uh, after Immigrants, we get the job done. I think the first couple weeks of the show, the audience kept applauding for a long time after that, to the point where I think he added an extra bar or two of music to allow for audience applause. I'm sure he didn't anticipate quite the response, and I wonder if that was something that got thrown in late in the game or if he had that idea early. It just was too good. Yeah. I know. And, and then there's uh, Sondheim versus... Um, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Andrew Lloyd Webber does not edit. He's, uh, once he finished the work, he's done with it. But then Sondheim is constantly correcting. Every time there's a new publication, he'll, even if it's just like one or two lines, he'll always be changing it. There's not one version of Follies or Roadshow. He wrote Roadshow four different times. Yeah, that's that's a that's a balancing act, isn't it? And it's hard to know because I think it's it can't be set in amber. But it also, if you are constantly trying to update something that was written, you know, at a certain time in your life, you almost have to live with that's where you were at that time. I want to encourage people to just get used to the idea of producing their own work because once you do it and you get accustomed to it, it stops being so precious. I've seen playwrights get really anxious and super worried and, oh, no, it's ruined, it isn't perfect, and da da Whereas I think, luckily, I've had the opportunity and the circumstances to where I have done many, many, many plays before. This is just another one, and it'll get done again later. And so if it's not perfect, that's fine. It never will be. In Episode 3, Daniel Bowers highlights the fun and excitement of building a reality on stage. It's an experience that if you ever get the opportunity, you have to jump on it because you're going to A, build relationships. You're going to build personal strength because you're performing in front of people. You're thinking, how can I balance my nervousness, my wanting to please people with myself because if you really like acting you're you're going to want to do this for yourself you're not going to want to play to the audience to give them what they want you want to light the fire within yourself so finding that balance while it may be nerve-wracking in the beginning as long as you stay true to yourself the audience is going to love it they're going to see that you have a passion for it so my encouragement is that whenever you get the opportunity, you should be like, hey, I have the opportunity to express who I am on stage. I can show the world how to be proud of themselves for however long you're watching it. That is your reality. So anything outside of that is your own character. I When I step on stage, there is some... Daniel Bowers in the character, but it's more like I am the character that has been a friend of Daniel Bowers. He's <laughs> he's influenced me, but 
I'm no longer Daniel Bowers. I'm whoever the character is. Emily Adams confirms that feeling in episode four while discussing her original play, Fever Dream, performed in 2013. When the lights come up on the set that you designed with people reading the words that you wrote in a packed house, it's so worth it. Every lost hour of sleep, every lost second of not being able to do what you wanted to do that day, every moment of having to deal with this difficulty is going to be worth it. Every time. Every time. Jana Hunter is the executive producer with her husband, Mitch, of the ABC show The Middle. In episode 10, she talks about storytelling to a broad audience. At one point, I was down on set with Drew Carey, and I was looking around, and I'm like, this is a surreal experience. I'm allowed to be here. I didn't skin, you know? Do you still have moments like that where you look around and you think, I'm at an event with this person and this person, and I belong here? It's mind-blowing, and there are times when I'm thinking, I'm here, and I do I belong here? But then I realize, yes, of course, (laughs) you know, but it takes you a minute. It takes Mm -hmm. you back, you know? (laughs) It's really crazy when you're on the set, and it's like an action, and people are acting, and then they come to you like was that okay and you're sort of like sure sure whatever (laughs) i guess i don't know i wasn't really watching just one more i think let's just one more to we like that one that's good we got it let's do it again you know mitch is mostly the set guy mostly i just sit around walking around set and go wow this is so cool it's also fake and so cool We well, make people you... believe this is a real house, and it's not. <laughs> is it so much business and so much audience that you lose the sense of fun and creating that's insulated sometimes? Well, I will say this about our show, and I attribute this to our creators and runners, Deanne Helene and Eileen Heisler, who are amazing. They're amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, to have the opportunity to play like this for nine seasons. Did you think you would want to go to 10? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of exciting because you'd be in such a club. At ten, I mean, you're you're suddenly in the club with shows from the seventies or eighties. That's got to be meaningful. It's unbelievable. Surely, you and Mitch have had a conversation or two. Like, what is it that we're doing that's working? You know, this exciting part about TV. It's very collaborative. In episode fourteen, Angie Mitchell expresses the fun of developing new forms or games in improv comedy as a member of the troupe, the Spontaniacs. One thing I love about the Spontaniacs is because we do develop new games. It sounds kind of cocky from well, we make up our own games. A lot of times, all we're doing is taking an existing game, mm-hmm. finding what works about it, tweaking mm-hmm. it, and then saying, oh, look what we just made. Well, and we adapt it for our particular brand of comedy. Yeah. And you all are still a five member comedy troupe. I'm still sad that we never really got the handle on the Irish drinking song. Actually, we may have found a way to fix it. Miriam figured this out. We would go, there once was a man named Susan. Oh, so you give time to think of the rhymes. Yeah. So we die between everything and then finish it. And it works quite a bit better. One little tweak and take a game from being a bust to being something that works really well. Do you have any advice that you want to give to somebody who wants to do improv? Just don't be afraid because you're going to be afraid at first. Don't be afraid. Go to a class and make sure that if you get the chance, you jump right in and do it. That's the only way you're ever going to do it is if you just jump right in. In episode 16... George Nelson echoes the feeling of creating original characters for both profound 
and practical reasons. I will say that I always enjoyed being involved in an original work. And one of the reasons was the selfish reason that unlike when you might be cast in a Shakespeare or in something that has been on stage often and been successful often and has been seen by many people, the original work, if you get out there and drop a line, no one ever knows. Oh, now I thought you were going to say something really profound, like <laughs> you get to create the character. The well, role, you know. perhaps you do. It is a character that nobody else has created before you, and so you're breaking the ground there for it, of course. But it's kind of, there's a freedom. It's like you're out there doing something and nobody is saying, I've seen it done better. In episode 14, Angie Mitchell talks about pushing through her early improv failures, and Jana Hunter from episode 10 talks about the value of her improv training with L.A.'s The Groundlings. When I was in college, I tried some improv, and I was horrible at it. There was never any, this is how you do it. But when I was taught by two very good teachers, I realized, this is what I've always told people, if you accept two things about improv, you will have more fun than you've ever had in your life. The first one is that at some point, you will be on stage and you will draw a blank and you'll just stand there going, uh, 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 uh. The mm-hmm. second thing you have to accept is at some point, you will stand there looking like a complete and utter fool. And that is the most fun. And embrace <laughs> those two ideas and know that they're going to happen and own them and you'll have fun. Uh, you know the actor's nightmare where you, in your dream, you don't know the play and you don't have... Oh, yeah, and you don't, you're not memorized. I seriously stopped having that nightmare and had this improver dream where I was on stage and started just saying stuff. Wow! Was that a better feeling dream? It was. It was a much better feeling dream. I woke up not feeling... <laughs> That's great! So it had an impact on your life. Because it started out that bad dream and then in the end I was like, wait a minute, I'll just improv this. It helps you think on your feet and it'll also give you more confidence if you're doing improv. You you know that you're going to be okay no matter what happens. You're going to have something to say. What it's like on a set is we've changed the joke and they're going to tape the show in an hour. So we've changed a whole bunch of your dialogue. <laughs> you're, as an actress, they're going, you've done what? <laughs> it was good training for that because like thinking on your feet and being quick and memorizing fast. That was good training for that. What Groundlings started to do for me was I started writing there because they really stress writing. So you have a writing lab and you have advanced writing lab. And so through those, I started writing sketches, you know, and in this world I work in, I'm very fortunate on this show to work with a lot of funny women. I mean, I'm working with more funny women than I've ever worked with. But at times in the Drew Carey show, I was the only woman in the room. You have to be comfortable with that. That's the thing about TV writing as a woman. You have to be comfortable with all configurations. (laughs) Like, you have to be used to being the only woman in the room. You have to be used to being in a room with five other women who are also very funny. Wes Vrooman, in Episode 6, believes telling stories is important, and a new crop of storytellers seems ready to tell stories in new ways. It does come down to support, you know, in the arts. Different people that need to tell a story. They need to tell their story. I love it when playwrights are writing things that no one has any eyes on. You don't see theater that much with people with disabilities in them or people in wheelchairs. That needs to be seen more. You are deceiving the audience already. The whole thing's already an illusion. So so why not expand the deceit to allow the audience to see more of themselves on the stage? Completely agree. Completely agree. 
100%. You know, people walk into the theater, they don't think they've walked into someone's bedroom until they suspend their disbelief. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't walk into someone's bedroom and say, okay, let me see a scene. That'd be kind of weird. <laughs> Do you think more theater companies need to get involved, more schools promoting open writing, open plays? Open writing, open plays. I think that's a nice term for it. Personally, I have started to see it kind of happen already in a way where people are having these conversations that we're having right now. I think that's a step, definitely. I I think this problem of closed casting and and all that is, it's a long road. It's a long journey. I don't know where it will go, but I know that at least in the school environment, I know that it's being addressed and it's, it's constantly being brought up and it's constantly becoming a topic of importance. Lisa Stefanik in Episode 8, George Nelson in Episode 16, and Daniel Bowers in Episode 3 encourage actors and directors to be flexible and create characters and stories that resonate with audiences. Not everything a director has is in blueprint, and I think this is important for them to learn, too. Be flexible, you know? Right. Right. How many times have we as directors, I know I speak for myself, you go, okay, I want you to cross here, here, and you're watching it, you you know, you block it, then you run it again, and I stand there, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, who thought of that? <laughs> Let's try something different. <laughs> oh, yeah. I got in, I think, like three Irish plays in a row because I loved the dialect, and I loved learning and, and doing the dialect on stage. The weir, I think may have been one of them that really made a difference because I played a a person who was my actual age. I didn't have to pretend to be either younger or older and who was lonely. And I think I was going through something in my own personal life at the time that made me have those feelings that were honest. And I think for the first time when that happened, it was maybe an aha moment that you can be honest and not just be technically correct on stage. And it feels pretty good. If the person who is creating the truth doesn't buy into the truth of the story, there's no way the audience will because they didn't go through the experience of this character because you have to go through the ups and downs, the different emotions that the character is feeling, which I encourage you to do. Don't just look at the lines, monotone them in your head, and then try and throw in bits and dabs of emotion here and there, you have to really think about, you have to meditate over the lines and say, okay, he was in a car wreck. He's frantic. He's a little bit shaken up. How do I portray that on stage? That's step one, but step two is you becoming that character. You pushing yourself into that role, casting aside Daniel Bowers or whatever your name may be, and donning this character, this new persona. As a dancer, Nicole Perry from episode 11 ponders the impact of portraying the truth of a character. Is there a difference on, on the spiritual life or just, just you know, taking on a character and being part of sort of the other in that yeah. context? Um, how does that resonate spiritually? And, you know, if you're doing... If you're playing the villain, how is that different than playing the hero? And does it does that have an effect on your spiritual life, or is it just a learning process of, or being involved with, you know, being seen? Being seen is a huge thing for people because, especially in this digital age, we very often don't feel seen. 
type of people we are with. So when you're on stage, do you do you feel seen or is it the other that's being seen or the other that's looking at you and then you feel ostracized instead of seen? I don't, I don't know. Wes Vrooman, in episode six, introduces a conversation for inclusion that is echoed by Lisa Wilson in episode seven. There are several classic plays that are written a certain way, and they're written to be certain people. But now new plays are coming out, these contemporary plays, where it's not written in the script that they're a specific kind of person. It's not written that they have blue eyes and blonde hair. Are you thinking of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not written that way, and so... If it's not in the script, I believe that it could be playable by anybody of any race. I mean, that's how it should be. If it's, you know, if it's not supported by the script or if you can't, you know, take that out. Yeah, I was definitely talking about. (laughs) For me, the theater has always been one of the most spiritual places I've ever able to go. I'm at home there. Yeah, I get that. I truly do. I've told my students often enough that our telling stories is how... We hold our culture together. How we tell each other who we are. Exactly. And I think that is why we need to hear these voices. I agree. Otherwise, we won't know who we are. Voices need to be voices that you haven't heard before. Voices that tell stories that sometimes are not comfortable stories. And sometimes they are outrageous stories. And sometimes they are stories that you go, oh, you don't mean that. You do mean that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Really? Oh. Well, let me tell you about this. Nicole Zimmerer from Episode 9 opens the conversation up to include physically disabled actors and storytellers, while Nicole Perry from Episode 11 zeroes in on the reality of body-based casting. I thought it was really great when they did Spring Awakening with Jeff West. I thought that was going to be like the cornerstone, I thought, of where everything was going to change when they did Spring Awakening. And they had the first actress in a wheelchair on Broadway. Honestly, I thought this was where everything changes, this is where, like, it starts to get better, and then they did Last Menagerie. They did a, a revival with a girl in a wheelchair playing Laura, which I auditioned for that role. I didn't get it, but I auditioned. I sent in the tape. I would love to have a, a musical with a disabled character where, like, in a dream sequence, she doesn't get up and dance because I want the actor to be actually disabled. But what about having a disabled dancer? I mean, you think about a place like Axis Dance Company. That's another thing. I would love to have disabled, because there are disabled roles, but they're rarely played by disabled people. As a performer, and particularly in theater and dance, where not only do you have a body and you do everything through a body, but you are really seen as your body and theater and dance. Like, you get roles based on your body or don't get them based on your body. Your experience is really, really mediated through what your body is capable of and looks like. And it just became really fascinating to me of how does that affect me as a spiritual person. Many people are able to sit behind their desk and be like, this is my head work and this is my body work and and then this is my spiritual life. But we are really integrated and we're really trying to integrate. And I do think every person has that opportunity, but it's hard. It's really hard. Our culture does not really allow for that or encourage it. You know, the body is still very much shamed and Pigeonholed. In episode six, Wes Fruman expands on his earlier comments and encourages storytellers to get out there and tell their stories. College students 
we're all starting to realize that it's not okay and that something needs to happen. Like, there are stories that are not being told in theater, and there are people that are not being represented in theater at all. So I, 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 just, I just think that people are, are finding that that is an issue. Theater needs to be for everybody, and I think people are finally figuring out that that's not happening right now. And I think the audiences are starting to realize that these outside-looking-in stories, they actually relate to people more. Because we've all felt that way. I think they're just different stories that need to be told. They're different stories to tell that we haven't heard in a while or that we haven't ever heard. You know, because we keep producing classic plays, you know, whether it's because of the ticket holders or... Everyone's guilty of that, though. But you, but some people take risks. I love it when playwrights are writing things that no one has any eyes on like you don't see theater that much with people with disabilities in them or people in wheelchairs and like that needs to be seen more sheila black from episode 13 and michael wright from episode 15 both caution writers to set aside worries that don't have anything to do with the expression of the work i wasn't very good at first reading aloud so i had to practice a lot what finally allowed me to relax a little bit was just to not care how it came out because it seemed to want to come out different every time I read something. And to really learn that I was there to express the words that I had written. So that's what I did. If I worry too much about how people take the words that I've written, I won't write anymore. You know, I'll just Mm -hmm. say, what's the point? But I write because I love to write. 20 years I've been teaching and 35 years I've been exploring writing, it just keeps getting better for me. I always feel a sense of satisfaction when I finish a poem. And I don't know whether it's going to be good or bad out there in the publishing world. Today, I I have such joy in working with students who want to be able to write and be proud of their writing. They're so lit up and you know they want to write and be writers. And I say, go for it and don't worry about what it looks like. Don't worry about doing it perfectly. Don't worry about people liking it or not. Keep on doing it. And um, most often, very satisfying, very satisfying. That's the other thing I tell my students is, look, you know, they start worrying about things like theme, and I'm like, look, 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 If there's any sense of the audience experiencing theme, it's going to happen after the show is over. It's a secondary affect. Don't, I don't want you worrying about that. Tell stories and let the meaning of the story happen to the audience as a later thing, because in reality, even if you had your characters shouting at the audience, the theme of this is that trees are nice. You could have them shouted a thousand times. And the audience would still walk out, and if you polled them, some of them would say, well, I thought it was about love. (laughs) I mean, because they have a very subjective experience. I don't want my writers worrying about that. What I really, really, really push them hard about all the time is write in such a way that the audience feels like they are a partner in the story, that they have to stay involved, that they've got to really pay attention, that they are not being told a story, but they're being shown a story, they're being able to experience a story. And then you're getting writing that is exciting, and it tends to keep them away from having plays that are set like in race cars and stuff like that. In episode 10, Jana Hunter shares some memorable advice she got about how best to create with an ensemble. 
I've been in rooms with people that are legendary. When I was young, and I was in a room with a guy named Jerry Belson. He created The Odd Couple. He was with Gary Marshall. He's partners with Gary Marshall, and they created Happy Days. So he's like this legendary writer. And his whole thing was, honey, just be nice and contribute. (laughs) That That was his big piece of advice. Be nice and contribute. That's it. Nothing else. I was like, okay. And in episode 17, Steve Barker gives the best possible advice. If you're into creating something like that, write, 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 write until you find something you feel good about and can be staged, and then look for festivals to submit your work. If you want to create something on the actor's level, audition, 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 and just do whatever you can, whatever feels right to you, and create that way. If you want to produce, find some venue, find some piece of work you want to do, find somebody who has a piece of work that you want to work with. The thing is to just do it. Don't hold yourself back because you feel that you're not good enough or we don't have this or we can't do that. Those are all negative barriers that you're putting in front of yourself. Create, create, create. Audition, audition, audition. Do, do, do. In Episode 7, Lisa Wilson sums up the value of storytelling. There's a campaign called 50 by 2020. Trying to get 50% representation of women's plays by 2020. It's important in boardrooms. It's important on the stage. It's important to see that when you look at TV, that there really are more faces that are more colors, that are more ages, that are more sizes, that are real and are not all bimbos and they don't all have v-neck sweaters they're real people with intelligence and real problems and they should make the same amount of money for the same kind of work and that they should be respected some of the young people that i get in my classes it's kind of an awakening to have somebody tell them that and i try to do that as nicely as possible but in doing birthing the crone I needed to say those things. I needed to tell those stories because they were stories that were about what family does to each other and how they can and cannot support each other at times, how they lose each other, how you wish you were there for each other at times and you can't be, Mm -hmm. and how along the way you simply make your family as you go. The journey that we make along the way, we all have to do the best that we can do. And we have to appreciate who we encounter along the way. And sometimes if we're not careful, we miss out on some of the best people. And some of the best people are actually in our families. In episode two, Will Inman points out that an audience is always the final collaborator. I think the reason to do theater is because there's a live audience there. That's people have always said the fact that it's live and the energy shifts every single night. And you're going to have a different play every single night. Um, especially, okay, so again, Animal Farm. It was such a weird play. They were talking animals on stage. We were all moving weird and making animal noises, but then we were people. We never knew when people were going to laugh, ever, just because they were uncomfortable with so much of what was happening on stage. I have to say, I'm interrupting you, but I want to say that is probably the best college production I have ever seen. I was so honored to be a part of it. I saw it twice. I liked it so much. And it was so different both times, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. The first time was hilariously funny, and the second time was a little more somber, which had something to do with the crowd, I think. Because the audience the first day was, you know, maybe it was a Friday night, and they were really happy. And then the second day, maybe they had gotten a fight that day, or maybe they were feeling sad about something. But that doesn't mean they're wrong. 
And if you do a play that's, you know, imps and realism, then you're really losing a big advantage of being able to play off how the audience is feeling. Yeah. Because the actor can always sense how the audience is doing. As soon as you get off stage, you go, oh, that was a terrible audience, or the audience is really great tonight. So if you're able to use that and to, to trust your actors to be able to connect and adjust to the audience, you're going to have a really good show every night. I hope you enjoyed the Sally Pal Clip Show and found an artist who piqued your interest. Episodes are available on most podcast platforms. Just look up Sally Pal. It stands for Sally's Performing Arts Lab. Sign up for a free Creator's Notebook insert at sallypal.com slash join. Thank you for following, sharing, subscribing, reviewing, joining, and thank you for listening. Now, I have one bit of wisdom from my husband, George, the coolest guy on the planet. George, what's your wisdom for today? Doubt at least includes room for hope. Well said, George. Well said. Excellent advice, indeed. If you're downloading and listening on your drive to work or falling asleep to my NPR-inspired narration, like my sister does, let me know you're out there. Storytelling through plays, dances, music, and other types of performances is the most important thing we do as a culture. That's why I want you to share your stories because you are the only one with your particular point of view. And Sally Pal is here with resources, encouragement, and a growing community of storytellers. I want to help you share your truth. All the stories ever expressed, once lived only in someone's imagination. Now, go tell someone who you are. your work the work some work anybody's work other people's work let's try this thing again they're filling it filling 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 <sighs> is it groundlings or the groundlings the groundlings it's the groundlings the groundlings is my participle dangling well, that would be strange and backwards. <sighs> no, I'm going to move that somewhere else. Are we started? Yeah, we started. Oh. We started. <laughs> <laughs>